Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Heavenly Father, we do pray for your help uh, right now. We pray that the testimony we're just about to hear, we would hear clearly. And that we would treat it seriously. And that you would help us believe. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please do sit down. And uh, as you're sitting down, if you could be turning back in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 19. That's where we'll start this evening. So John chapter 19, that's page 1088 in the church Bibles. I wonder, do do I really know what I'm like? That might sound a rather stupid question to ask. If I don't know what I'm like, then who does? But it's, it's not at all a stupid question, is it? Actually, it's quite hard to assess ourselves, think about ourselves accurately, and very, very easy, we know, to deceive ourselves. Uh, For example, do I snore in my sleep? That's a hard question for me to answer because I'm usually not awake when it might be happening. I've got a long-running dispute with my family about whether I snore. Uh, But then on holiday last year, we were sharing a room, and and Sam says he was woken by my snoring. And uh, just to prove it, he recorded me in action on his phone. (laughs) Or so he claims. I I still actually suspect it was an audio file he downloaded from the internet. But there you go. So what am I really like? Am I honest, hardworking, respectable, caring, loving, Reliable. Most people like to think of, of themselves that kind of way, at least. You know, reasonably honest, relatively hardworking. Uh, but the experts, the moral psychologists, tell us it's very easy to set up experiments where people with the very highest of self-regards will lie and cheat so long as they think they can get away with it. Maybe they won't do it a lot. Maybe they'll just do it a little. But lie and cheat, they do. So anyway, here's our big question for tonight. What are we really like? What are we really like? I mean, we collectively, as humanity, in particular, what are we really like when it comes to our attitude towards God? What do we think about him? Now, we might say all sorts of things in answer to that question, and people, of course, do say all sorts of things in answer to that question, but what's the truth? What experiment could we set up to show what we really think about God? Uh, Well, according to John, the author of our main passage tonight and and the gospel it's a part of, we don't have to set up an experiment because 2,000 years ago, God himself set up the perfect experiment to expose what we think about him. God himself broke into history, broke into his own creation, into into that which he had made, and he did it to expose the truth. John's gospel begins with the divine word becoming flesh, that is becoming fully human and living among us. Or to put it another way, God the Father sent the Son into the world. And it's a very simple kind of experiment. How we think about the Son will tell us how we think about the Father, how we treat the Son, will tell us how we want to treat our God. 
And tonight we're going to revisit one of the most important results from that divine experiment, a, a key piece of experimental evidence. And if you've got John 19 open in front of you, and if you glance down with me at verse 35, uh, you can see how passionately John wants us to accept and believe this evidence. This is what he says. He says, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. This is almost certainly John himself speaking here. He was there. This is his personal eyewitness testimony, and he's testifying so that we may believe. But believe what exactly? Well, I'd like to suggest three things tonight. First of all, believe what John said he saw. What he said he saw, believe that. Then, believe the significance of what John saw. What it tells us about our attitude towards God. And then finally and wonderfully, believe something really unexpected. That despite our attitude to him, he nonetheless wants us to find cleansing and life. Okay, so three parts. Believe what John said he saw. Believe in the significance of that. That's going to be the longest part. And then believe and find life. First of all then, believe what John said he saw. Now we began to look at this last week, but it's worth looking at again very briefly. Let's remind ourselves what John has just seen. He's just seen Jesus die. Uh, Look at verse 30. Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's a terrible moment, but we can imagine the Jewish leaders who worked so hard to have Jesus executed like this, at that moment, breathing a collective sigh of relief. The threat to the status quo, to their cozy relations with the Romans, it's now finished. All they want now is to clear things up as quickly as possible. They want the bodies cleared away before the Sabbath of the Passover celebration. And then they can get on with life just as it was before. I'd guess that Pilate would have breathed a sigh of relief too. This headache, this troublemaker, it's all been dealt with. It's gone away. And as for the soldiers, this was just, I guess, the final stage of a routine task for them. They just want to get the job over and done and go home. It is Friday night after all. All of which leads to what John sees next. Verse 32, he sees the Roman soldiers come to break the legs of the men being crucified. They did this so that the, uh, those being crucified to stop lifting themselves on, on the nail that was pinned into their feet, lifting themselves so they could breathe. You break the legs then you can't lift yourself and you suffocate very quickly. But verse 33, when they got to Jesus, they found him already dead. So they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. It's these two things that John saw. Jesus' bones unbroken and the spear piercing his side. It's those two things especially that John wants us so desperately to believe that he saw. 
The man who saw it has given testimony. His testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. Ellie Wiesel died last year in July. You may have heard of him. He was a famous Holocaust survivor uh, who among many, many books wrote uh, one called Just Night, describing his experiences as a prisoner at Auschwitz and then at Buchenwald. And uh, Wiesel in that book describes some things that are so unbelievably awfully, I I daren't even mention them to you tonight. But I do want you to listen to what he says alongside his testimony, his eyewitness testimony. He says this. He says, yes, I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes. I pinched my face. Was I still alive? Was I awake? I couldn't believe it. Is it, is it not surprising that I couldn't sleep after that? He had no smartphone to record what he saw, but he saw it. He knew he was telling the truth. We'd have to be very cold-hearted now, I think, not to believe him. John, likewise, has seen John's gospel, something he knows to be almost unbelievably wicked and awful. He's witnessed the Son of God casually, shamefully, unjustly executed. He knows that he tells the truth about it. And he testifies so that we also may believe. I think we'd have to be very cold-hearted not to believe him too. But John doesn't want us just to believe the brute facts, the death, the unbroken bones, the pierced side. He also wants us to understand and, and believe the significance of what he saw. I guess this is the second stage of the belief that we're going to look at tonight. We should believe what John saw, but now we're to believe the significance of what John saw. Look at what John goes on to say from verse 36. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Now Andy took us through the first of those quotations last week. Jesus died like the Passover lamb whose bones were not to be broken, according to the scriptures. In other words, he died as a sacrifice for his people. He died as the only way to bring rescue from God's judgment. He died as a substitute. He died in our place. But now we're going to look at that second quotation, the one in verse 37. I want to persuade you tonight that John wants us to believe this, that this quotation fulfilled in the death of Jesus, tells us something really important, significant about ourselves. That this, and this in particular, exposes what we really think about God. That we'd really prefer it if he wasn't there. That we'd really rather he just went away and died. Or to put it very bluntly, it shows us that we are naturally, as humanity, God-haters, Now, you know that there are some people who are entirely open in their hatred of God, even as they claim they don't believe he exists. And I imagine that some of us here, many of us here tonight, have come to accept that this is how we used to treat God. This is how we used to think about him, as an enemy to be hated. And we also know that apart from his grace, we would still think of him that way. 
But I wonder tonight if there are some of us here who have yet to accept it. And I wonder if, even as I say it, you're thinking to yourselves, no, 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 that's not me. Hate God? Want to kill him? I've never felt that way. Never will. So let me take you back a further 500 years into the, into the past, to the time of the prophet Zechariah. And what I'm hoping to do here is to show you that you're not the first people, if you're thinking that way, to have thought that way. And then we'll be able to come back to John chapter 19 uh, to see that you're not the first people to have thought that way and then to have been proved wrong. Okay, so if you would, please do stick something in John chapter 19 so we can turn back to it a little later. And uh, let's turn back to our other reading tonight uh, from Zechariah chapter 12. And uh, you'll find that page 957 in the church Bibles. Zechariah and chapter 12. Let me begin with a little background. The prophet Zechariah was speaking the word of God at the time of the Persian king Darius the Great. As the people of God were returning from exile to the land of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. In fact, we can date uh, this particular passage because it appears in the second half of Zechariah's prophecy very precisely to 518 BC. Now, on the one hand, these were traumatic times for God's people. Uh, The nation of Israel had effectively been destroyed. Uh, That's because they had turned their backs on their God, the one true God, uh, to follow other gods, false gods from the nations around them. And then just as God had warned them through the prophets, those nations then turned and destroyed them. A relatively few number of them survived, dragged away hundreds of miles into exile. And as Zechariah is speaking, many of those have now begun to return to their old homes, or at least they've tried to, and what's left of them. It must have been an emotionally draining experience as they did that. We have some friends whose house burned down last year and know just how traumatic it was for them going back and to their house, to that burnt-out shell. Um, if the terrible war now raging in Syria ever ends, and of course we pray earnestly that it will, imagine what it's going to be like for them going back home, the refugees returning. You know, how much worse when, you, when your whole nation lies in ruins, your hometown It's just a pile of rubble. So traumatic times. On the other hand, there was hope. There's always hope with the Lord, of course. In fact, the Lord had always always promised his people mercy and restoration if they turned back to him, even after everything that's happened. And Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, is repeating and repackaging those promises. Yes, I will return to be with you, says the Lord. Yes, I will save you and gather all my people from all over the world. Yes, I will bring blessing where previously there was just death and curse. And yes, I'll even make you to be a blessing in the world as you were always supposed to be. It's all the promises repeated. But what's also very clear from what Zechariah says is that the Lord's going to make good on those promises in unexpected ways. In fact, that's a really good summary of the book of Zechariah. I heard it from someone a little while ago. 
Expect the unexpected. Expect the unexpected. For example, when the Lord does come to be with his people again, Zechariah says that he's going to do it in a way that's going to draw proper attention to what's happened in history. You know, he's not going to airbrush out the past and pretend it never happened. So, for example, when Jerusalem's king returns to Jerusalem, it's not going to be with a sort of happy triumphalism, as if nothing bad has happened. He's going to do it in such a way that it'll make very clear that he's been hurt, that he's been afflicted by his people's betrayal. And to signify that, he's going to return to Jerusalem, not on, not on a war horse, as you might expect a triumphant king to return, but on a donkey, just as King David did when returning to Jerusalem after his people betrayed him under his son Absalom. Well, that's in Zechariah chapter 9. All the gospels, all the gospel writers show Jesus fulfilling it as Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time. Something to remember today on Palm Sunday. And now here again in Zechariah chapter 12, we find the unexpected. When the Lord does defeat Israel's enemies, when he does pour out his kindness and grace on Jerusalem, he's going to do so in a way that opens their eyes and emotions to what they've done to him. You might expect at that moment a a whole lot of sort of parting and celebration. But no, it's not going to be like that. Uh, They need to have their eyes open to what they've done. They don't want to think of themselves in a bad way, just as we don't want to think of ourselves in a bad way. But he wants them to see them, what they're really like. Look at chapter 12, verse 9 from me. Let me read from... Uh, Yeah, from verse 9. So on that day, the Lord says, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. You know, so there is going to be victory for you. Uh, But no celebration. Look, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. See, the people of God have been far too kind of complacent, far too casual in their relationship with the Lord. They've taken him far too much for granted, treated him very shamefully. I suppose it's a little like this when their eyes are opened. Imagine a 50-year-old marriage where Amidst all the anniversary celebrations and congratulations, the the wife suddenly turns to the husband and says, you know, the truth is this. I've never felt that you really love me. You know, I've never felt that you've ever been tender to me. You've never really expressed any interest in me. I've spent 50 years feeling entirely taken for granted. And at that moment, the husband's eyes are open to what's happened. And he hears it with dismay. And he can look back at what's happened and see that there's some truth in what she says. And of course, he's cut to the heart. He's been thinking it's been fine all these years, but really it hasn't. Likewise here, the people look on the one they have pierced. 
the one they have hurt, the one they have afflicted. And they are likewise cut to the heart. They mourn as one mourns for the loss of an only child. They grieve. They they weep. They weep everywhere. Everywhere there's weeping. You see, their hatred towards God, their indifference towards God has been exposed. But before we turn back to John's Gospel to see how it is that, that, that God is actually going to do this, you know, how, is it he, he, how he is going to open the eyes of his people and bring about this kind of response, just let me point out a, a couple of strange details in these verses, some unanswered questions. I wondered if, if these occurred to you as it was being read to us. Uh, to begin with, who is it who gets pierced in verse 10? So the Lord says, they will look on me, the one they have pierced. But later on in the verse, he says this. He says, they will mourn for him, apparently someone else. What's going on there? And if it's the Lord being pierced, the Lord God, how is that even possible? How is it possible to pierce someone who isn't even physical? I guess we can take it as a metaphor, of course, Uh, for how the people have treated him. But it does seem a little odd, doesn't it? Okay, with those questions in mind, let's fast forward again. 500 years, back into the future. 500 years, back to John 19, John chapter 19, and see how those kind of fuzzy ideas come into sharp focus in Jesus' death. Okay, so John chapter 19 again, page 1088. Let me remind you again of what John has just seen. This is the image that he's seen and testifies to be absolutely dependable and true. The crucified Jesus is dead on the cross, but his bones are unbroken and his side has been pierced with a spear and blood and water are pouring out. And then he says, verse 17, this this part, the piercing, fulfills... Zechariah's prophecy. Zechariah's prophecy for 500 years beforehand, they will look on the one they have pierced. So who is pierced? Jesus. The word become flesh. The son sent from the father. God cannot normally be hurt or killed. But what about if God makes himself vulnerable? What if he takes on a a human form? What if he becomes human? Has a body that can be hurt? Flesh that can be pierced? Blood that can be spilled? What happens then? What happens if he were to do that and, and live amongst us? Well, this is what happens. This is what happens. This image stands as a picture, a testimony to our attitude towards God. We want him to go away and die. And we'd prefer it if he were really, really dead and could be entirely forgotten. And so the soldier here stands for all of us as he sort of casually, almost absent-mindedly slips the spear into Jesus' side just to make sure. So it's an image for all of us 
It's an image first and foremost, of course, for the people who were there in Jerusalem at the time. Uh, it's, it's an image that I think spoke to some of those who were convicted by what was happening. Uh, that would have included uh, Joseph and Nicodemus, who we read about later in our passage. But then later when Peter preached at Pentecost and, and spoke about what had happened, as, who spoke the message of this image, he said this, he said, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when Peter said that, the people were cut to the heart, just as Zechariah said they would be. They cried out, what should we do? What should we do? But I'd like to say this is also an image for all peoples at all times. It's also something of a foretaste of of what we're going to encounter and see at the final judgment. You see, there we will see Jesus, whether we like it or not. Risen, exalted, given authority to judge. But we'll also see the wounds in his wrists and his feet and this wound in his side. And the wounds will say, even if he doesn't say it himself, the wounds will say... This is what you did to me. This is what you did to me. I don't know. Perhaps you're still resisting this conclusion. You know, still thinking. You know, it, it wasn't. Look, it wasn't me. I wasn't there. I don't bear any grudges against God. I'm not a God hater. I'm just minding my own business. Look, I've barely given a, a thought, so I, I swear, all through my life, all through my life, right from the beginning, in my whole life, in all my relationships, my career, everything, really, honestly, I've barely given it a thought. But that, of course, is the problem, isn't it? So let's be truly honest then. Given half a chance, we'd rather he wasn't there. And this would be our cosmos, our stuff, our lives, lived our way. And so with barely a thought, perhaps not even very much emotion, we slip the spear in his side just to make sure. But the amazing thing is, That's not the end of it. There is one kind of final, deeper stage of belief for us to think about tonight. Uh, I've tried to be telling you that uh, believing the truth about ourselves is hard. But the good news is if we do do that, it can lead to something very wonderful. And uh, this is our very final point tonight. Believe the truth about Jesus' death, says John. Believe the truth about yourself. And then... Believe, believe in him and find cleansing and life. This is the amazing thing, isn't it? The end of the image is is not just the soldier piercing Jesus' side. That's not the last thing that John sees here. Look at the end of verse 34 again. The soldier pierces Jesus' side bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. 
Now, at a very pragmatic level, that is confirmation that Jesus was indeed very, very dead at this stage. That's important. That's significant. That's important when we come to, to think about his resurrection, the empty tomb later on. But I'm also convinced that John intends us to interpret those things, to interpret the blood as a symbol of death and the water as a symbol of life. That's not too hard to justify. Blood is a consistent symbol of death throughout the Bible. Blood inside a body signifies life sometimes in the Bible, but if it's outside of a body, then not surprisingly, that signifies death. And water is a well-used symbol of life. And uh, John has drawn our attention to it many times in Jesus' words in his gospel. Many, many times. So that's right, that these are symbols of death and life. Then John is drawing our attention here to a, to a very vivid picture, a very vivid picture of the life that God is bringing out of the death of Jesus. Life flowing like the water, which brings new birth, as he said, as Jesus said to Nicodemus. Life flowing like the water, Jesus promised the Samaritan woman back in chapter 4, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Life flowing like the rivers of living water, which Jesus promised at the feast in chapter 7. And that's a picture very consistent with the link we've just looked at, the link back to Zechariah. We won't go back and look at it again now, but let me just remind you of some of the things that the Lord said there. At the beginning of our passage, he said this, I will pour out, pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. And at the end of our passage, he says this, on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Remarkable words, aren't they? Some of them quite strange as well. It seems a strange thing, doesn't it? We can imagine pouring out a spirit of grace, but a a spirit of supplication. That seems odd, doesn't it? But it does give us quite a big clue about how we should express the belief that John wants to bring about in what Jesus is doing here. Supplication is prayer. It's pleading with God for favor we don't deserve. And so what God does as he brings all this about is a desire to pray. A desire to pray as we look upon the one we have pierced. We look and we mourn. What have we done? And we look and we'll know what we deserve for doing this. We grieve and weep. And so we pray. We cry out for mercy. And the amazing thing is that the Lord answers In Jesus, he bears the death we deserve. He washes away that sin and he floods us with living water, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So yes, it is really hard, I think, to know how to think about ourselves, how to judge ourselves. You see that kind of struggle, don't you, when you read people's CVs 
uh, the way we try to portray ourselves to other, to other people, potential employers. You know, I'm passionate and lively and hardworking and punctual and reliable and I've got a clean driving license and I've got good computer skills, all those things that we pour out at that moment. Well, think of all the effort that we put into social media, sort of media, sort of constructing a persona, constructing a character that we want people to see, carefully manicured perhaps, a crafted person. We might be better than that. We might try and portray ourselves relative to others. I'm, you know, I'm a husband or a wife. I'm a father or a mother, a team player. I guess that's better, but it's still not the whole story, is it? It is something we can meditate on as we come into Easter week and come up to Easter and meditate on the cross this coming Easter. As we meditate on the cross, we're not just seeing what God has done for us in Christ, although we are seeing that, and that's marvelous. And we should be remembering that. What we're seeing tonight is that we're also seeing what we're really like. We look at those wounds. That is what we are really like. And while many, many of us, not many of us, I think, will be honest enough, I suspect, to put God hater on our Facebook page or in our CV, we have seen tonight there's a much, much darker side to who we really are. But I hope we've also seen, we've also seen that it doesn't, that doesn't have to be the end of it. And that in the end, if we do believe what God has done for us, done here in Jesus, then we can come to echo uh, the words of the Apostle Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 6. Okay, so God hater. Yes, we say. That is what I was. But I have been washed. I have been sanctified. I have been justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do want to pray for conviction tonight, conviction that what we've read about, this testimony from John, is absolutely true, historically reliable. Conviction about the significance of it too and what it shows us about ourselves, a conviction of our sin, but also a conviction that there is hope, there is life, there is washing. There is something wonderful we can find in him. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.